Hey, it's Shannon Ballard. Your Southern Mysteries is an independent podcast. It's made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. So if you'd like to help, you can join Southern Mysteries on Patreon and you get a little something in return. You can hear more than 60 episodes in the Southern Mysteries archive, and you also have an option to support the show and hear exclusive monthly episodes that are new this year called The Lesser Knowns, stories of lesser-known figures related to major historical events. Join me on Patreon today and catch up on all the episodes you haven't heard at patreon.com slash southernmysteries. Letters, handwritten letters, offer insights into personal relationships. During World War II, more than 16 million Americans were drafted into service, and their letters home painted a real picture of what it was like to be at war. Letters from the home front offered soldiers a reminder there was a world apart from war, someone who knew them not only as a soldier, but as a father, husband, or friend. These letters were historical records of war, but more than that, they were something tangible, a source of connection and comfort through the only form of communication during wartime. And they offered soldiers and their loved ones something to hold on to. By the time the war ended in 1945, nearly 300,000 American soldiers had died, and their letters would be all that many families had left of their loved one. So many had these treasured letters because of a group of women who served in World War II, but received no recognition when they returned from their overseas mission. Trained in Georgia, the women were part of the U.S. Army's 6888 Central Postal Directory Battalion. They were the only all-black, all-female battalion to serve overseas during World War II. Their mission? To restore order in a chaotic situation and help boost morale. Welcome to Southern Mysteries, exploring the history and mysteries of the American South. I'm your host, Shannon Ballard. This is the story of the 6888. Women from all backgrounds, at home and overseas, played a critical role in World War II. More than six million women took jobs in factories when men were overseas, and the need for war materials increased. Those jobs created opportunities for women who needed to work to provide for their family, or wanted to work as a way to do their parts in the war effort. More than three million women took that patriotism to heart and volunteered with the Red Cross. Over 200,000 served in women's auxiliary branches of the military, including the Women's Army Corps, commonly known as WAC. The Women's Army Auxiliary Corps was established after President Franklin Roosevelt signed into law the legislation that established it in July 1941. In 1943, the Women's Army Corps was established as an official part of the Army. Women in uniform were assigned to work in office and clerical positions. Others were trained to drive trucks, repair airplanes, 
serve as radio operators. Just about every job a man had done in the past was an option for women because the military needed more men for combat in the European theater. The War Department knew victory would require all Americans do their parts, and they needed the support of an important segment of the country, Black Americans. It's tough to defeat fascism when you haven't defeated racism on the home front. Black press organizations created and promoted what was known as the Double V Campaign to encourage enlistment. The campaign connected civil rights and military service for Black Americans. V for victory in Europe and V for victory in the fight against racism. The Double V Campaign inspired support for the war effort from Black Americans. Men and women joined in the effort taking jobs in factories and defense plants on the home front, and enlistments of black men increased. First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt wanted all Americans to have the opportunity to serve. The military was segregated, and initially only white women were admitted to auxiliary branches. The First Lady worked alongside civil rights leader Dr. Mary Bethune to advocate and win admittance for black women in 1942. Nearly 5,400 enlisted, and by the end of the war, nearly 9,000 served between the states and England. Enlistment came with not only the opportunity to help in the war effort, but the opportunity for economic stability and advancement. Black Americans were barred from some jobs in civilian service that were available to them in the military. Elaine Bennett joined as soon as enlistment became an option for black women. She said of her decision, I joined because I wanted to prove to myself and maybe to the world that black people would give what we had back to the United States as a confirmation we were full-fledged citizens. But life in the military reflected civilian life. Service came with tremendous pressure of discrimination and segregation. President Roosevelt issued an executive order banning discrimination in civilian industries during wartime, but military service remained segregated. Enlisted women served in segregated units. Training was segregated. They ate in separate mess halls and slept in separate quarters. White women would be the first sent overseas, which led advocates to petition the War Department on behalf of black women who had enlisted to serve their country and wanted the same opportunity. In November 1944, the War Department granted approval. Throughout the war, thousands of women trained for their service at Fort Oglethorpe, Georgia. Fort Oglethorpe was the third largest Women's Army Corps training center in the country. More than 8,500 women received basic and overseas training there during World War II. It was the talk of the country when women arrived for training, and it got a lot of attention because celebrities and politicians visited, including President Roosevelt. He wanted to get a firsthand look at the Women's Army Corps training. Celebrities encouraged service members and kept morale high. Ella Fitzgerald, Bing Crosby, and Al Jolson visited Fort Oglethorpe and entertained the troops. This included the women of the U.S. Army 6888 Central Postal Directory Battalion. 
Known as the 6888, the battalion was made up of 824 enlisted women and 31 officers from the Women's Army Corps. During overseas training at Fort Oglethorpe, the women learned to identify enemy ships, aircrafts, and weapons, along with intense training that involved long marches with rucksacks. They also learned how to board and quickly evacuate ships. When their overseas order came in January 1945, the women made their way to New York, where they sailed for England on February 3rd. They knew little about their mission. All they were told was that the War Department wanted the unit to bring order to a chaotic situation. That chaos was literally stacking up in warehouses in Birmingham, England, where millions of undelivered letters and packages were being held. Mail intended for soldiers, government personnel, and Red Cross volunteers in the European theater and on the home front. With the average soldier writing six letters a week, the postal system was overwhelmed. Early in the war, it had taken anywhere from one to four weeks for mail to be delivered. But as the war continued, and with a lack of systems in processing centers, there was a constant stream of letters being mailed, but the rate of delivery continued to slow down. The staff in Birmingham had an overwhelming amount of mail, and no system to organize and deliver it to the intended recipients. Allied forces were moving across Europe and often changing the location of service members, which created greater challenges for mail distribution and delivery. And there were security issues with some of that mail. The War Department hoped the women of the 6888 could help. But getting to England came with risk. Their ship had close encounters with Nazi U-boats. As they were disembarking in Glasgow, Scotland, they were quickly reminded they were in a war zone when a German rocket exploded near them. They ran for cover, and thankfully, no one was injured. When the 6888 arrived in Birmingham, they learned they would be under the command of Major Charity Adams. Adams was born in North Carolina, and raised in Columbia, South Carolina, where she was a teacher until 1942. That year, she enlisted for service and became one of the first African-American officers of the Women's Army Corps. She was selected as commander of the 6888 before she knew what her orders would be. Adams was ordered overseas in January 1945. One hour into the flight, she was handed a sealed envelope that detailed the mission to prepare for a postal battalion to arrive in Birmingham and undertake the mission from the War Department. Now, Major Adams quickly realized the situation on the ground was complicated. Three warehouses were filled with letters and packages literally stacked to the ceiling. Many packages contained baked goods, care packages from back home, which had been discovered by rats, that had partially destroyed the boxes. None of the buildings had heat, and it was a harsh winter. The people of Birmingham, England, responded immediately, wanted to help the 6888. They arranged to open school buildings because the schools at least had some heat. Now, the lighting inside wasn't the best because all windows had to be blacked out to prevent Nazi air raids. But these women were on a mission. 
They ordered extra long johns and wore several layers of clothing, and they went to work. Their motto was, no male, low morale. They knew how vital it was to soldiers and their loved ones to get those packages and letters. Command knew a key challenge had been a lack of systems, so they created their own. Major Adams had the unit separate into three eight-hour shifts, meaning work was nonstop. The shifts were 24 hours a day, seven days a week. One of the major issues postal workers had faced was a lack of information about where service members were stationed and how to locate and verify the identity of service members who had the same first and last name. The 6888 created and maintained 7 million service member ID cards, index cards, that noted their serial numbers and last known location. They used the ID cards to cross-reference names on mail that had partial addresses and had been marked undeliverable. They pieced together clues to locate the intended recipient. And the 6888 also had the heartbreaking responsibility of returning packages and letters to family and loved ones whose mail could not be delivered because the service member had died. The women of the 6888 worked hard, but in between shifts, they made time to socialize with the locals who welcomed them with open arms and respect. The women became fast friends with many civilians. This was a strange environment for them being sent overseas to serve their country in a segregated unit where they were welcomed in all public establishments. But when they returned to their U.S. military quarters, they were once again segregated. The 6888 had been sent to England to help raise the morale of service members while facing racism and sexism. One well-documented incident of Major Charity Adams responding to both occurred when a male general arrived to inspect the 6888. He was welcomed, but he was not in Major Adams' line of command. When the general attempted to enter the sleeping quarters, he was told that wasn't possible because the women were working round-the-clock shifts and needed to sleep to keep to their ordered schedule. The general waited for the unit and personnel to assemble in formation before publicly berating Major Adams over the absence of some of her troops. Adams respectfully explained her unit worked in shifts, and the general threatened to send in a white male first lieutenant who could show her how to command the unit. Major Adams' reply was steady and respectful. Over my dead body, sir. The general threatened to court-martial Major Adams, and she responded by informing him she would be filing charges against him for using language-stressing racial segregation and ignoring a directive from Allied headquarters. And the matter was dropped. This was one of many situations in which Major Adams stood her ground for the 6888. When the Red Cross offered to donate equipment so the battalion would cease to use a recreational center for white female soldiers, Major Adams refused. She insisted the women of the 6888 have continued access to the center that they had used since their arrival in England. If it was good enough for everyone else, it was good enough for the 6888. 
Major Adams also encouraged the 6888 to socialize with all service members and volunteers to foster friendships and a general spirit of camaraderie. Their work was demanding and quite impressive. The 6888's tracking system led to about 65,000 pieces of mail being processed during each shift. The War Department had given them six months to complete their mission. It took them just three months to clear the backlog of millions of pieces of mail stacked in warehouses for months. That motto, no mail, low morale, kept them going on bitterly cold days as they helped connect service members and their families. They have been so successful in England, the War Department ordered the 6888 to Rouen, France in May 1945, where there was an even bigger challenge, a backlog of undeliverable mail, with some dating back two to three years. The 6888 arrived in France just after Victory in Europe Day. The newly liberated French planned celebrations to mark the end of war and famously invited the 6888 to take part in a victory parade. It took six months for the 6888 to complete their mission in Rouen. They faced an obstacle in France they had not experienced in England, theft. As the war ended, there was a lack of food and supplies across Europe, and the mail center was a target of theft for the French because people were starving. They knew many of the packages to service members and U.S. personnel had food from home. The 6888 were self-sustaining with their own military police, but they were not armed. They were trained in jujitsu, a line of defense used against anyone trying to break into the center. The 6888 also faced tragic loss in France when three members of their unit, Privates First Class Mary Barlow and Mary Bankston, along with Sergeant Dolores Brown, were killed in a Jeep accident on July 8, 1945. The War Department offered no resources for the funerals, so the women of the 6888 pooled their own money to pay for the caskets of their fallen comrades who were buried with honors at Normandy American Cemetery. Situated on a bluff high above the coastline of the 1944 D-Day beach landings, the cemetery is the final resting place of more than 9,400 Americans who died in Europe during World War II. There are only four women buried at Normandy American Cemetery, three from the 6888, along with Red Cross volunteer Elizabeth Richardson, who was killed in a plane crash in France. In October 1945, the 6888 were ordered to Paris and by February 1946, ordered back to the States, where the unit was officially disbanded. No public thanks, no parade or recognition that other soldiers received nationwide. The work of the 6888 was recorded as a key accomplishment of the Women's Army Corps when the General Board of the U.S. European Theater conducted a survey on how successful women had been throughout the war. Performance notes record the women using strategy and creative thinking to clear the backlog 
of over 20 million letters during wartime. Their achievements noted in government records, but as was the case with the Tuskegee Airmen and other Black American veterans, there was no grand welcome home, no public recognition. Only six of the 855 women from the 6888 are still alive today, including 97-year-old Lena King, who said of their return home, our dismissal was quiet and unpronounced. We simply went home. No unit commendation of any kind. When these women returned home, many of them returned to the Jim Crow South with veterans of the 6888 in Alabama, Mississippi, Georgia, and Kentucky. The first official honor they received came from Europe in 1981. A group from the unit returned to Birmingham for a reception in their honor by the city's Lord Mayor. They also traveled to Paris, where they were greeted by military officials and civilians who cheered for them. By the late 1990s, the women of the 6888 were publicly acknowledged with long overdue recognition in America. They were honored at the dedication of the Women in Military Service Memorial at Arlington National Cemetery. In 2019, the Army awarded the 6888 the Meritorious Unit Commendation. And another honor could be coming soon. In 2021, Congressman Jerry Moran from Kansas introduced legislation to award the unit the Congressional Gold Medal for their pioneering military service, devotion to duty, and contributions made to increase the morale of all U.S. personnel stationed in the European theater during World War II. The U.S. Senate passed the legislation last year, and the work continues to advance it to the House for a vote. Acknowledgement and recognition. Those are important words for Black American veterans who served their country during wartime, but were often overlooked in historical accounts of war. For three decades, retired Navy Commander Carlton Philpott worked to celebrate America's Black veterans with monuments at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. One of the first was a 13-foot-tall Buffalo Soldier statue. The Buffalo Soldiers were all Black regiments formed just after the Civil War. The regiments were made up of many former slaves. An act of Congress ordered the formation of these regiments to help maintain order during Western expansion. They negotiated with Native tribes as stagecoaches and wagon trains moved west and they helped capture cattle thieves and train robbers. No one knows the exact origin of the term Buffalo Soldier, but legend says it came from Native tribal leaders who said these soldiers fought valiantly and fiercely, just as the mighty revered Buffalo. Commander Philpott helped raise awareness about the 6888, and in 2018, a monument was dedicated in their honor at Fort Leavenworth. Lena King was one of seven veterans of the 6888 who attended the ceremony and wept when they saw their names inscribed in stone. 
She told the Veterans Chronicle podcast that Philpott's mission to honor them and the parade in their honor on the day of the dedication was mind-boggling to her. 75 years after returning from the European theater, they were finally made to feel like they had done something worthwhile during the war. She wished more of her comrades could have experienced that moment with her. They stood side by side through the war, returned home, and moved on. Most lost touch. It was the 1940s, and it was hard to stay connected across the country. But as decades passed and social media came along, the family of 6888 veterans were able to connect some of the women through groups and pages established to remember their service and ensure none of them are forgotten. Like Berthy Dupree, Berthy passed away at a care home in North Carolina in 2019. Over the final years of her life, she had been a ward of the state, and no one claimed her remains. Her social worker didn't know all of Berthy's story. She just knew she had been in the military. So she researched eligibility for burial in a VA national cemetery. Records show Berthy had enlisted in 1943 and was assigned to Company C in the 6888. Her service continued after World War II when she went to work at the Veterans Administration and joined the WAC Reserves. Berthy served again during the Korean War. She qualified for internment at the National Cemetery in Salisbury, North Carolina. Her story was shared in local papers and on social media which led to a big crowd lining the procession route to honor her on the day of her burial. The procession included military trucks, law enforcement escorts, and a huge group of Patriot Guard bikers. And there was someone special graveside. Elizabeth Barker Johnson had served with Berthy in the same company of the 6888. North Carolina was her home, so when she heard of Berthy's story, learned she had no living family, she traveled to Salisbury for the funeral. Elizabeth ensured Berthy was not forgotten and accepted the folded American flag in honor of her fallen comrade. Elizabeth Barker Johnson was 98 years old when she attended Berthy's funeral. A year later, she fulfilled a lifelong dream. When she returned from overseas in 1946, Elizabeth went home to North Carolina and became the first female to attend Winston-Salem State University on the GI Bill. She graduated with a degree in education, was a teacher for 50 years. She loved her work, but had one regret. She didn't get to walk at commencement. By the time she graduated, she was already teaching, and her superintendent refused to allow her the time off. In 2019, the staff at Winston-Salem State University invited her to walk in spring commencement. A long overdue, as she put it, incredible moment she was able to share with her family. Elizabeth Barker Johnson passed away in August 2020, just months after she celebrated her 100th birthday. There are hundreds of incredible stories of service and sacrifice 
on the parts of the six triple eights. Like so many of the greatest generation, they didn't talk much about the war. Some of their families didn't even know their unique service story until the 1990s when national organizations began to reach out because they wanted to honor them. Gregory Cook is an historian and educator who's working to relocate African-Americans to the main page of history. His documentary, Invisible Warriors, tells the story of Black women and the important role they played in helping win World War II and the tremendous pressure all Black Americans carried into the war. As Cook says, all Black veterans knew that had they failed, all Black people would fail. These service members carried the desire to serve along with the burden that their role in the war was about something much bigger than themselves. In 2009, three surviving members of the 6888s were honored for their performance in the face of adversity. During the ceremony at the Women in Military Service Memorial at Arlington National Cemetery, military leaders praised them as role models for women who have followed their lead and served their country. 6888 veteran Gladys Carter spoke at the ceremony and asked the young women in attendance to listen carefully to what she had to say. She said, you are standing on our shoulders, but let me tell you what our pride is. Seeing you young women who have succeeded since us. The 6888 were trailblazers for women in the military and for civil rights. They made history during World War II as they challenged racist stereotypes. But as Major Charity Adams said in a ceremony in her honor, just years before she passed away in 2002, they just wanted to serve, do their job, and do it well. Southern Mysteries is created and hosted by me, Shannon Ballard. After World War II ended, there was domestic and international pressure for America to address its race issue in the military. During the war, when black soldiers were socializing with allied troops and civilians in Europe, they were constantly asked why their country was willing to send them to war, but treated them so poorly at home. The same thing happened to black veterans of World War I. Civil rights leaders kept fighting for change in the military. And on July 26, 1948, President Truman signed an executive order mandating desegregation of the armed forces. Military branches slowly began implementing the policy, but some moved slowly and fought against it. It took six years to be fully implemented and decades longer for Black American veterans to be recognized, and as Gregory Cook put it, relocated to the main page of history. Veterans like Major Charity Adams, who was recognized by the Smithsonian Institute as one of the 100 most important Black women in history. She shared her story of service and the 6 in her autobiography. It's called One Woman's Army. I'll share a link to her book along with all the resources for this episode and photos of the 6888s in the show notes. 
at southernmysteries.com. I want to say a special thanks to all of the patrons of Southern Mysteries who make this show possible so we can tell the stories, these incredible stories in history, including our newest patrons, Teresa from Newmarket, Alabama, Lou from Pelham, Alabama, Karen from Tucson, Arizona, Vanessa from Buckeye, Arizona. Back to the South we go. Sarah from Junction City, Arkansas. Now we're going out west. Janetta from Playa del Rey, California. I hope I said that the right way. Richard and Sharla from Tulare, California. I used to live there. That's a great place. Zach from Lansing, Michigan. Alan from Chesterfield, Missouri. Judy from Soddy Daisy, Tennessee. One of the cutest little names of a southern town I've ever heard in my life. And across the pond we go. Trisha from Manchester, England. Thank you so much for your support. And thanks to our patrons in mystery locations, Sue, Alana, Daniel, San, Bonnie, Darlene, Amanda, and Laura. All of these incredible people, you've just heard their names. Uh, they are Southern Mysteries patrons supporting this independent podcast. And in return, they get to hear the Southern Mysteries archive of episodes, more than 60 episodes there. You also have an option to hear Patreon-exclusive episodes this year called The Lesser Knowns along with the archive of exclusive Patreon Southern Mysteries shorts. There are a lot of stories there that uh, you can only hear on Patreon. So learn more and join today at patreon.com slash Southern Mysteries. And hey, if you don't have the money to support a podcast right now, you can support in other ways. You can rate and review Southern Mysteries where you're listening. You can share this episode on your socials and just, you know, just say, hey, check out this podcast. It helps. However it looks for you, thank you so much for your support of Southern Mysteries, and thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.